Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 104, recorded December 1st, 2012. 45th episode of the 90s. The number keeps getting higher. That's amazing. Yeah, so we're uh, this is our Deep Space Nine episode where we do uh, Malibu Comics 7, 8, and 9. Issues 7, 8, and 9. Cool. Yes, we're doing Deep Space Nine, part of the triad of enjoyment. So we're on number three of the triad. I mean three as in Taz, uh, Next Gen, and Deep Space Nine. The triad oh, of pleasure. Gotcha, gotcha. Of, of reading enjoyment. Yeah, and these these two these three issues uh, aren't horrible. <laughs> Boy, is that a backhanded comment? <laughs> um, well, I, I almost said two because one's a two-parter, yeah. and it's enjoyable. But the the first one, not my favorite. Okay, and I kind of like the first one. Oh, really? Okay, good. I kind of like the first one, and, and and I'm fine with and I, and I like the the second and the third, but I like the first one better. But the second one has some things going for it too. Let's go ahead. You, you feel like starting and yeah, we'll let, let let's, the uh, listening audience, as vast as it is, make their mind up. Let's do so. Make okay. it so. <laughs> Thank you, Captain. Okay, so Malibu Comics, uh, Star Trek: Deep Space Nine, issue number seven. The title is Working Vacation. Published date is February 1994. Writer is Len Strazowski. Um, penciler is Bob Davis. Inker is Terry Pallet. Letterer is Patrick Ousley. Editor is Mark Panacea. Great. The cover features Kira's head and upper torso staring at the reader with smileless intensity. In the foreground are two golden-suited warriors that are either totally covered in armor or are two robots. The left combatant appears to be firing a light beam at the other's triangular shield. The story opens up with a very angry Kira Narice saying that something is outrageous because you can't trust those murderers. Turns out she's talking about the Cardassians. Gul Dukat, to be specific. He and another Cardassian are in the same room as Kira Cisco and a blue alien whose planet is the object of mining negotiations that are just starting. Cisco has to call Kira out of the room due to her inappropriate outburst. Starfleet has ordered Cisco to take part in these negotiations that so far the Cardassians appear to be conducting in good faith. Cisco sees she won't be able to conduct herself appropriately given her history with the Cardassians, so she orders her to Ziara 5, which is a planet on the other side of the wormhole. There she will hone her diplomatic skills by discussing terms of commercial development with the inhabitants who want to market themselves as a resort world. Odo pilots her through the wormhole to Zaria 5 on Cisco's orders. He is not to let Kira return prematurely. 
they approach a Zarian ship that looks like a big white luxury yacht with nacelles attached at the side. The, the Zarian representatives hail them and asks Kira to beam to a specific location on the ship. There, Kira is welcomed by the contract administrator, who in turn asks a well-muscled, scantily-dressed young man to greet her with a wreath. The contract administrator welcomes two purple aliens who represent the wolf oligarchy. The steward, who is the young man who welcomed Kira, walks, walks Kira to her quarters on the pleasure ship and makes it clear he is there for her every need. He asks if she wants to change into something more comfortable. Kira says no and thinks to herself how nice some of the Cardassians were when they tried to recruit some of her people in the past. The steward leaves and a wall of her quarters plays a video commercial showing how beautiful Zarya Five and her servant class of people are. The contract administrator appears in her room and says if she does not care for the beachfronts and barely clad people, then maybe she would like to witness some actual combat. It is time for their yearly negotiation where the combatant representatives from Zarya Five fight in, a, in high-tech suits of armor to determine which class of people will lead and which will follow. Kira calls into question how much the servant class is enjoying the combat. She thinks back to her youth on Bajor during the Cardassian occupation. She learned how to fight when she was young. She lost many friends. After her reverie ends, she says she will never be caught unprepared again. Steward returns to Kira's room and is distressed to see Kira has not changed into something more comfortable. He starts to display an image of Kira in several comfy and some sexy outfits, while Kira asks Steward about the negotiation combat ceremony. Steward tells her that though they look similar, his people and the contract administrator's people are different. Generations ago they settled their enmity through negotiations and combat. Their first loss long ago settled his people's place in their society as a subservient people. Since then, his people, who have never been trained for combat, have never won the yearly negotiation combat ceremony, and to this day, they are the servant race. Kira states that is not fair, and that the negotiation is a suicide for Steward's people that engage in it. Steward replies that this is the way of the world, and that it is none of an off-worlder's business. How about this dress? Kira says no, given the latest options skimpy cut. They arrive at Zarya 5 and disembark. It's a beautiful planet that makes Kira think about how Bajor was probably like this at some point in the past, before the Cardassians raped it for all its natural resources. Kira thinks about what Bajor could do with a fraction of this planet's resources. Kira witnesses many incidents of Steward's people being abused physically and humiliated. She attempts to stop it by subtle means at first. Then, after she has had enough, she decks a blue jerk and pours her wine on his unconscious body. Kick some butt, Kira. She tells Steward that it's time for some changes around here and says with the right training her people can win this year's negotiation. 
Stewart says that is quite impossible since he is their representative this year and he is no warrior. Kira takes the challenge and starts to train Stewart in the gentle art of combat. Though Kira and Stewart train for days, Kira states he is useless and has learned nothing. Stewart needs to get over his training from birth to be a passive servant, but Kira comes to the conclusion that he probably can't. Later the next day, the combat begins. Two gold-suited warriors in the ring. And as per usual, the servant combatant immediately starts losing. He is knocked to the ground, but manages to shoot his laser into the face of the master combatant, which gives the steward time to get up. The fighting continues, and suddenly the reader is able to see the ar- through the armor to see that it's Kira, not Stuart, fighting for the slave people. She is having a harder time than she expected, getting used to the- controlling the armor, and the master race's warrior is very good. The contract administrator is in the audience and comments how this negotiation is going on longer than normal. Kira gets a few licks in, but her more experienced opponent is beating her. Finally, he fires on her yet again, and her suit's triangular shield finally melts under the repeated directed energy fire. Kira wonders how much power these suits can possibly have, and is answered with her opponent's gun going dead with lack of power. She jumps on the opponent and does a sweeping kick that knocks her opponent's legs out from under him. Once he hits the ground, Kira jumps and lands with all her suit's weight on her opponent's knees. With him immobilized, she comes down on her opponent's chest with a left punch that's carrying all the power her entire torso torso can bring to bear. Defeated, she raises her arms in victory! Seeing the defeat, the slave cast is ecstatic. They tell their masters they can get their own drinks and start chanting, No more contract! No more contract! Kira returns to the combatant ready room, gets out of her suit, and unties Stuart. He says she has ruined their way of life. The masters will never take their servant role despite the slave's victory. Kira tells them the contract is gone, and now they will have to do true negotiation, but this time it will be from a position of strength that will yield a far more fair society. Luckily, it looks like Stuart's people are far more willing to embrace their new freedom than he is. Days later, back on DS9, Sisko is sternly telling Kira that he has received a complaint from Ziara 5's contract administrator. Something about Kira having a role in a serious labor dispute? Kira feigns ignorance and says that she knew there was some kind of negotiation going on, but... In the end, Sisko acknowledges Kira is not Starfleet, and as such cannot be bound by the Prime Directive. Happy with herself, Kira asks Sisko when her next vacation assignment is. Later, she is relaxing in her quarters, watching a holographic projection of her adventures on Zarya 5. The end. Well, it just... I don't know. I, I don't know. Didn't like it. well you know there are a lot of things about it that seemed uh like impractical and not fully thought through on kira's part but i you know i do kind of like you know kira's take charge kick butt way about things sure so you know i kind of liked it from that standpoint and there was you know there was some action with the combat and stuff i i liked it even though it's not perfect but (laughs) it was good 
I mean, it was all right. I just, yeah. uh, it wasn't my favorite. Right. Cool. It just seemed a little coincidental. She just happens to go to the planet, and it just happens to be time for the big challenge, and it just happens to be her uh, personal attendant happens to be the... Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, just like, oh, my goodness, how many more coincidences can we throw into this thing? <laughs> exactly. Well, yeah. That's bad, but, you know, this isn't the first time there's been a bunch of happy coincidences that keep the story moving along, but... Right. Like and the 2009 movie. What's which that? we've talked about multiple times. Oh, the 2009 yeah. movie, right? Right. Yeah, I was... I just want to make one quick comment, and you're more the DS9 app, uh, expert than I am, but the the fact that Odo is flying her uh, to meet up with the cruise ship by, you know, by the ZRFI folks, I could have sworn that there was an episode in DS9 where it was established, and maybe it was just in the in the earlier days of the show, where uh, Odo does not know how to fly a spaceship. Huh. I thought I remembered that. Because, uh, I mean, he is the constable, and, you know, he doesn't get off the, sh- the station much. Uh, I thought he wasn't didn't know how to fly, but, you know, maybe I'm wrong in my, my memory. Well, this definitely I, says that, that he can't. He does and can. I don't remember. I don't remember that being a problem. Okay. Um, cool. Sorry. That could be mis- misremembering. But I will say in the Star Trek universe, I mean, if you're in Starfleet, it makes perfect sense how everybody knows how to fly a ship. Because right. you get that kind of training. Um, but if you're a civilian or if you're, you know, a cop, you know, maybe it isn't as natural you'd get that kind of training. But, yeah. Right. Cool. Yeah, I, I can't remember. I can't remember if he was trained or not. I just assumed he was. Right. Don't know. That, that part didn't strike me as odd. Okay. But, you know, when you were doing the synopsis, you, you kind of hit on it that it's it's really abrupt how it just goes from her training him to – to her just taking over the the robot <laughs> right right and because and part of that is because you know they don't want you to know at first as as the battle begins that it's her although you pretty much know i mean right everything you've seen up to now is that uh steward is useless and he continues to be useless even after the battle so which right. is unfortunate because wouldn't you see I mean, some of the other servants are have a backbone, and they seem very, very ready to tell you know the master race, you know, go get your own drink, uh, and they're even starting to to in in large groups uh, chant, you know, no more contract and that kind of stuff. So they seem to have a backbone, but he doesn't, which is a bit of a problem because wouldn't you think that they would all be going, you know, they're not used to to, to running anything. They're used to being reacting to what the master race wants. Wouldn't you think that in a negotiation that's going to take place, wouldn't you think you would want your champion to be in the lead of that? What do you mean in the lead of it? Well, if you're used to never taking the lead on anything, but always being reactionary because you're the slave race, and right. now you're in a position where a champion of yours has had the backbone to stand up and defeat the master race in combat... What's going to happen next is going to be some form of real negotiation, not combat crap, but right. real negotiation to figure out how their society moves forward. If you were those slave folks, wouldn't the first person you would look to for leadership be be your champion that defeated oh, yeah. the master race? Yeah. And I think that's going to be problematic with Stewart because he shows absolutely no indication of having a backbone. 
I just hope he rises to the occasion. Well, and I've said this before. I hate it when there's a contest and whoever wins the contest wins the the main storyline, whatever it is. Right. And then the good guys cheat. I hate that. And I mean, she cheated in this in this episode. Well, okay. And so, uh, how does she? Okay. Besides she, taking the place of Stewart, how does she cheat? Yeah, she took the place of Stewart. Well, the 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 thing is, it's supposed to be somebody for a repre- a, a person of that race is supposed right. to okay win the contest. Okay, and, a person of that race did you, not win the contest. Okay, and do you think it's fair that they? put forward a member of Stewart's people that have never had warrior training that actually have been basically beaten into submission over the millennia or however long this was uh, to, to be trained from the beginning to be passive and not, not aggressive I mean how are they going to win anything I mean basically you're setting these folks up to be slaughtered every uh, year on an annual right. basis that's not fair so I agree with you Kira cheated but it's like, these guys are in a no-win situation. And, and maybe she should have just stayed out and done the prime directive thing. And, I, and, I, and the thing that bugs me is she hasn't thought through all of this. <laughs> you know, what's ultimately going to happen when she leaves. And I don't like that. But the fact that she saw that there was a fundamental uh, unfair situation going on here that are affecting half of a population. And she was willing to do something about it which might include, quote, cheating, um, I'm more okay with it than you are. Right. Obviously, you're okay with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, uh, no, and, and I get that. I get all of what you just said. Um, yeah. I would have much rather her be able to train him. And, right. That would have been much better. Maybe some... You know, special move she taught him or something. Yeah. I don't know. Could have won. It just, it just irks me that she ended up having to cheat. Right. I agree. See, yeah. we're saying the same thing then. Yeah, I agree. But, but I'm more okay with how this ended. Well, to help justify it, basically, Stewart is like the most backboneless individual he could be, and that's the way they're <laughs> painting him. To help justify what she finally did, right. as being she had to. I mean, if she was really going to do anything here about achieving her ends, but she had to. She had to. No, if I, she's I going to to achieve her ends, which is to try to bring some level of fairness to this lopsided society. Right. It is what it is. It is. It is they, not perfect. Cheated. <laughs> cheater. Cheater. Cheater, cheater, pumpkin eater. Okay. I'm just saying, all the kids reading this comic book at home are going to think, you know what? I could cheat to win. Never thought of it before. No. <laughs> are you kidding? <laughs> really? Do you think most kids never thought of cheating? Never. And if yeah. they did, they were like, oh, well, cheaters don't win. And then here she is, Kira yeah. Nerys. They're the hero to millions of kids around the world. Ugh, yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, just kidding. All right. I thought um, the uh, the armor thing was weird, especially how you could see through the armor at one point. Well, yeah, that's weird, but obviously they just did that so the reader could see it's Kira, and they could see her facial reactions and thought bubbles and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, of course. I mean, yeah, it's not like it really happened. Yeah, it was a little weird when you first saw it, but it's like, oh, okay, this is the only way they can really let you know she's in there. It's kind of like an Iron Man. 
you know, in all the Iron Man movies and Avenger right. movies, where yeah. you can see his face, like like you're in his helmet. It's like, yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah, but when I was reading it, at first I thought, oh, she's in a power suit somewhere, and that's like a holographic representation of a larger robotic thing that she's controlling. But oh, when, when it shows her actually get out of it, that's when I was like, oh no, that was that was really the armor. Yeah, she was in it. What else you got, sir? I thought it was pretty cool when Kira finally deals the death blow. I mean, not that the guy died. At least I don't think he died. And it's a full-page thing, and you can just tell from the way they drew it. She came down with all of her weight on that on that punch that finally ended the conflict. And the big the comic book lettering on the top that gets you across the um, you know that the sound of what's going on is in big, huge uh, font. And it says, Kradoom, K-R-A-D-O-O-M, which was kind of like, oh, it's like Kira Doom. You know, it's like, I like that. So what, What? I mean, it shows him like falling on the ground with the big right. punch. And then the next panel shows him standing up. Well, And then okay. the next panel shows him blowing up. No. Yeah, okay. So um, I agree it looked like he was standing up, but I think that is just um, less than perfect artistry. I think he's supposed to be, after Kira basically lands on his knees, he's not getting up. He, he's actually physically on the ground as she's got her arms raised in the air or whatever. On page 22, that bottom panel, he's definitely standing up. That is not the intent. I mean, the I, shadow I, I is agree, on the bottom. I agree with, with how you're interpreting it, but that's that cannot be the intent. There's no way, after having his knees crushed, there's no way he can stand up. Okay, but what he's up? Well, standing how, up. How is he going to stand up with his knees crushed? It doesn't make sense. Hence the reason well, I was talking about it. Yeah, and hence, despite the less than perfect drawing, uh, he's got to be on the ground. I, I, I agree with you. It's just, yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I agree with you on the shadows and everything. Because you're right, there is a shadow behind him. But how could he be standing after having his knees crushed? All right, so we agree. It's weird. Well, it's weird. And you're right. It looks like he's standing. Okay, fine, fine. It looks like he's standing. Oh, thanks. You finally agree with me. I agree with you. Although I don't see how he could possibly be standing with the damage to the suit and the knees being crushed. But So, less than perfect drawing. And by the way, when he does blow up, he blows up due to damage, right? I don't know. I, because... I... Because because Kira doesn't do anything else to him other than the initial, you know, big Kradoom punch to his chest. Don't know, man. I thought maybe it had something to do with she destroyed his little logo on his front, and then that somehow <laughs> was the well, how you won the game. It, his it was, little red logo? It was unclear to me. Right. And it does look like he blew up. So did he die? Hmm. Let's hope so. He was bad. He was bad, man. But he was just put into the fight. The real bad men are jerks like the contract administrator. True. And the people that came before him that basically cheated to make Steward's people a subservient race. And by the way, those subser- the, the, the Steward's people, boy, what a bunch of idiots. So they went along with this thing when they cheated? And it's like, I don't know. And when they continue to cheat? I don't know. I mean, they cheat yearly. <laughs> And also, how does she get that holographic thing at the end? So she's sitting there relaxing in her quarters, and she's got this holographic thing sh- sh- playing different events that happen in the story. So, I mean, was somebody yeah. there with a camcorder? We didn't know it. Well, it televised the the event, maybe. I don't know. 
Well, but the first thing you see at the top, you know, the, so it has three different little images showing. The uh -huh. top image shows, and I didn't mention this in the in the synopsis because you can't mention everything. But the first time when Kira tries to get back at and stop in a more subtle way the abuse that's going on to somebody, she dives into a body of water, which is very close to a jerk who is abusing a, one of Stewart's people, and the big splash from her diving, you know, disrupts what he's doing enough that he he stops. You know, physically abusing this person, right? Uh, and it shows that. Now, that wasn't in the event that happened later. That happened earlier, right? I, I didn't even notice that. To tell you the truth, yeah. So maybe those are just snapshots from her memory. Maybe they did have a cameraman. <laughs> you know, like when you maybe go on Odo. a cruise ship, they're like, maybe oh, it's Odo. Here's your pictures. Ah, <laughs> uh, no, uh, maybe. I doubt it. <laughs> I thought it was interesting on page 10 where Kira refers to the ground uh, of the planet Ziara 5 as Earth, quote Earth. Earth. You know, the, the, the generic term for, like, dirt, uh -huh. you know, on a, on a planet. Well, it's because it was Earth. translated for us. Yeah, but she's not even from Earth. I, mean, I know, but from... it was that's how it was translated for us, the reader, <laughs> to understand what she's talking the about. The universal translator oh, takes Oh, Earth. In. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I thought the same thing, but I... Didn't want to mention it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, I got it. Okay, okay that's fine. You, you're trying to cut it lots of slack, the story lots of slack. I got uh, it. Well, I have a similar comment for the next issue, so uh, okay. uh, we'll be revisiting that. Okay. Well, that's my last comment on that one. Okay. That issue. Cool. So you liked it better than I did. Yeah. I didn't think it was horrible, but uh, not my favorite. Exactly. Okay. All right. Next up is issue number eight. This one came out May of 1994. Uh, all the staff is different, so I'll just rattle through it real quick, hopefully. And, and, and Donovan, before you get going, could I just ask, why was there such a gap between issue seven and issue eight? Because eight is in May. February. Huh. What happened to March and April? Interesting. I don't know. They took a vacation? Maybe. I don't know. Maybe. Okay. Yeah, just you're right. Ask. Wow, I just I didn't even catch that. Yeah, just thought it, I thought it was odd. Uh, I don't know. You know how? I mean, this is a Marvel and DC are both New York based comic book companies. This one is California based company. Oh my God! So they, they they took off a time to go surfing. Probably. Yeah. Not to be <laughs> dude. Stirred. The waves were high in April. Come on. Uh, well, I mean, let's see. Ninety four. There would have been that earthquake. Ninety three, ninety four. Wow, Wait. you you remember an earthquake back then? Okay, cool. So yeah, an L A earthquake. So this is a, a Los Angeles base, I guess Malibu. Yeah, I assume yeah. so since it's called Malibu. Malibu, right? Cool. Okay. <laughs> uh, anyways, uh, I don't know. Good point though. So the writer is Mark A. Alton. Penciler is Gordon Purcell. Inker is Scott Reed. Letterer is Dave Lamphere and Color design is Moose Bronman and Chad Stewart. Interior color is Boo Tones. And the editor is Mark Pansia. Yeah, I don't know what that Boo Boo Tones. What if that's a company or if that's a person's name? I was thinking the same thing because it's uh, apostrophe B U space T O N E S. And yeah. that does not sound like a person's name to me. Uh, it, it might. And it is color, right? Interior right. color. It sounds like a company to me, but I don't know. It might be. It might be 
Malibu uh, tones, kind of. Oh, hmm, hmm. Because I know hmm. that they did. They they were one of the first ones to really push digital coloring. Okay. So they maybe that's the name of the that department. I don't know. Yeah, and by and our what is interior color? The colors of inside shots, you know, like in buildings and stuff. Is that what interior no, color is, or it what is that? Other than the other than the cover. Interior. Oh, the inside of the comic book. Right. Oh, how interesting. Yeah, because hmm. basically what the in, the color designer does is is just like say this is gray, this is green, this is blue, and then the um, they then they take the scans of the inked artwork and then they they, they come up with the exact shades. Right. Okay. So cool. I think that's that's the difference. Okay, because this is the first time I've I've noticed a book that had this kind of credits. Labeling yeah. for people. Does the next one do the roles. same thing? No, uh, the other one just says color design. Yeah, just says color design. I don't know. Hmm. Okay. All right. So uh, this issue is entitled Requiem. The cover shows O'Brien and a Cardassian in a b- boiler room type looking place, uh, and they seem quite surprised by some exploding machinery behind them. So the story starts off two years ago on Deep Space Nine. A young Bajoran girl named T is lying on her bed with a little teddy bear. She is idly writing in her data pad. Her mother comes in, and the girl informs her that she's writing a journal for class. There is a buzz at the door, and the mother leaves the girl to answer it. The next shot shows the mother being suspended from a ceiling in shackles. Her green clothing is in tatters, as if she's been physically abused. A Cardassian interrogator says he is only going to ask her one more time. Then he will make her watch her family die. He calls her Trika. But the weak woman says her name is Mailer Bet. We now flash to the present, where O'Brien is working on a downed reactor. Sisko calls for a status report, but O'Brien says he does not have good news. He is working as best he can, but the damage is very severe. In Ops, Cisco gets a status report from Kira. This entire station is running on reserves until the generator can be brought back online. Cisco and Kira discuss the possibility of bringing online some of the old Cardassian generators that were decommissioned years ago due to leaking radiation. Kira wants to start an evacuation. Cisco says that O'Brien can get the generators up and running. He just might need some help get it done. On his screen, he accesses a file of a Cardassian engineer. Kira is shocked about what Cisco might be thinking. Cisco meets with O'Brien in person to inform him of the immediate arrival of Duloff, the Cardassian who was once engineer of Torak Nor. Cisco says that he has reasons for trusting the Cardassian. A short time later, Sisko and O'Brien are meeting Duloth at the airlock. He recalls the name O'Brien for serving once aboard the USS Phoenix with Captain Maxwell, and he's a little disappointed. Or I think what he says is a pity. Sisko then informs their guests that O'Brien was most recently serving aboard the Enterprise. This seems to impress the Cardassian greatly. They soon get down to business with some shop talk. Duloth suggests the possibility of sabotage. O'Brien dismisses this since the reactors were in such bad shape to begin with. 
Duloth counters and says that they never exploded on his watch. Angered, O'Brien reminds the man that on his watch, the other reactors leaked lethal radiation, killing Bajoran laborers and Cardassian soldiers. Sisko cuts the feud off right there and says that they must work together to get this job done. A short time later, the two engineers are clad in pressure suits to protect them from the radiation. They entered the quarantine area, and immediately their tricorders and other tools uh, go offline due to the radiation. Duloth looks around at the abandoned area, and he recalls how when he was here, this area was filled with soldiers and Bajoran laborers. O'Brien corrects him and says that they were Bajoran slaves. Duloth says that there's always two sides to any story, and perhaps he should learn the story from someone other than Bajoran terrorists. Meanwhile, back on the promenade, Sisko is having coffee with Dax. He tells Dax the reasons why he trusts Duloth, and that is that he resigned from the station a year before the Federation took over due to the reactor leaks and the damage it was doing to the population. Sisko says the man was instrumental in saving many of the inhabitants at the cost of his own career. Back in the reactor room, O'Brien is making his way through some tiny access tubes. He is shocked to find a small area that still has power and perhaps looks lived in. He also finds a data pad of some sort. Later in Ops, O'Brien has given the data pad to Kira, and she has confirmed that the data pad is a diary written in an old language that she cannot read. Sisko orders her to have it translated and report back in the morning on what it tells. Kira thinks that perhaps the diary was recently left and that perhaps the owner of the diary might still be alive in the tunnels. Kira retires to her quarters and the computer is able to translate the diary into English. Oddly, not some sort of Bajoran dialect that Kira knows, but it actually says English. The diary makes references to the girl's mother, perhaps going by the name of Trika. Kira asks the computer about the name Trika and is shocked to learn that this is a code name for the resistance leader named Maylor Bet. She listens until she hears the sad entry, Today, Mother did not come home. Actually, it says, Mother did not come home today. O'Brien and Duloth are working again in their pressure suits. O'Brien comes up with a brilliant plan and gains Duloth's admiration. In Kira's quarters, she is still listening to the diary. The young girl is now in hiding, but she is hungry and wanting to venture out for food. She does so, but was caught by a big-eared man. The big-eared man does help her, and he warns her that the Cardassians are looking for her. We flash to Quark's bar. O'Brien and Duloth are having a break. They are having a pleasant conversation with Quark himself when Kira barges in and picks up the little man by his jacket collar. Kira demands the name of the little girl he had once helped. Quark says that he does not know, but Duloth says that her name was Maylor T. He says that he knew that her mother was executed on the station for being the head of the resistance. He says that he will do what he can to try to find out what happened to the girl. Later in Odo's office, Duloth shows a picture of Maylor T and her family. Duloth excuses himself 
that he has to return back to work with O'Brien. And Kira heads off to the Hollow Suite and runs a program where Maylor T is brought to life to be continued. Pretty good one. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting to have this little uh, mystery of the little lost girl and the fact that she might still be in existence on the on the station is uh, kind of interesting. Right, hiding on the station, not knowing that the Cardassians are no longer the ones in charge. Exactly. Exactly. Um, it's kind of like a... Um, it, it's, I, I, the, the phrase bittersweet comes to mind, but there's nothing sweet about it. Right. So this is looking back into a very brutal past on the station uh, during the occupation. And uh, maybe we do get most of our information from just one side of the Bajorans, but judging by what was going on, <laughs> I don't know what the heck the Cardassian uh, story could possibly say that would make this anything other than a forceful occupation of a planet and enslavement of her people. I don't know. I did find it funny that he actually says perhaps you should get another side of the story. Right. And then they drop it. And I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll listen to your side of the story. Tell it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> come on, let's go. <laughs> come on, big man. Let's tell it. Hey, come on, come on, come on. They were terrorists. Well, how about something besides using a label that may or may not be appropriate? Right. Yeah, Come so on. I enjoyed the story. Obviously, it's a um, it's analogous to Anne Frank. I mean, I, I really think that's where they're going with the whole diary. Oh, interesting. Oh, you weren't getting that vibe? No. Oh, okay. Although I probably should have since Anne Frank was brought up not too long ago in another of our favorite current TV series, uh, American Horror Story. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, American Horror Story, I thought, did a pretty pretty good job of, you know, putting a spin on the Anne Frank story. Right. And summarizing it quickly. I mean, there were a lot of details about the Anne Frank story that I did not know. And you learned it from American Horror Story? Some things, yes. <laughs> Some things. Anyway, so, so, yeah, when I was reading this, I was definitely getting the Anne Frank vibe as far as, you know, a girl living in the you know, attics or crawl spaces or whatever, you know, it was in, in this one, she's by herself for the most part. She does mention that, you know, a few people are trying to help her out, but, uh, it's not, but anyways, that's, that's what I was getting the, the vibe of. And, and she's telling the horrors of, you know, being occupied through the eyes of a little girl. Right. Which, which is, you know, I think that's a, that's a big part of the Anne Frank story. Right. Cool. That's probably true. But uh, my problem with this story is is that it seems like Mailer T and Mailer... Uh, what was her name? Uh, her mom's name is Mailer... Bet. Bet. Yeah, they, sh- they seem to be living pretty well uh, before she gets strung up and tortured right. or whatever. I mean, she's in a very nice <clears throat> room. Bed's nice and made little stuffed animal next to the girl while she's playing around on her data pad uh, which I don't see that being the way they lived just two years prior to the Federation coming in and, and liberating Deep Space Nine Yeah, you see it more like them in some mass housing area or mass you know, section of the uh, of the station right right I know that you know we see a lot of flashbacks later in the series Deep Space Nine where we actually learn more about Kira's mother, you know, being on the station mm-hmm. when Kira was just a baby. 
and the living conditions were horrible there. So I, 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 I'm trying to take that out of consideration because that came later in the series, not when this comic book came out. Right. But in this comic book itself, isn't there wasn't there a scene just last time we did Deep Space Nine episodes where Odo was talking about his time being on the station and and it was pretty rough there too, right? Uh, I believe so. Yep. So, anyways, I I, I thought it was odd they living so comfortably uh, while they're being occupied. Right. Uh, and as far as I know, she was just a worker on the station. I mean, the parents. Right. It wasn't like they had any special status or anything. They were just more occupied labor. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and usually when you're, if they really were slaves like that, and and just chiseling away at rock that they were beaming up from Bajor itself. Right. You would think that would the kids really be going to school? Would the kids really have little teddy bears and being asked to make diaries and things like that? I mean, all that doesn't ring true for right. What what we are supposed to know about the Bajoran past? Right. I agree. I agree. If they would have said the story happened ten years ago and not just two years ago. I probably would wouldn't have so many problems with it. Okay. But because it, they clearly say this happened just two years ago, which would be just one year before the the first season, the first season of Deep Space Nine. That's right. That's, I have a problem with it. Yeah, which means it was you know, very close to the part that the Cardassians finally left. Right. Which, of course, uh, is all all makes a lot of sense since I mean, how how long could the ten year old girl survive on her own? Um, so. Right. Yep. Yep. Uh, something that I learned in this issue is the fact that Bajoran names put the surnames first and then the uh, you know the the what we call first name right uh, second which I did not know that oh you never caught until that until now on on other episodes well well no because yeah. I never saw two people that were related having their names you know put out there so you know so much yeah so like so between Kira Norris yeah. is Lieutenant Kira, not Lieutenant yeah. Norris, and they call Norris. Right. Her name is Norris when they're just being familiar. Right. Yeah. Never caught that. So interesting. It's good that they do stuff like that because uh, they are sense. supposed to be aliens. <laughs> <laughs> so it's good that there are some differences more than just tattoos or something on your right. face. So their comm badges are on the wrong side of their chest, and they're. <laughs> <laughs> that's pr- that's a pretty minor difference. They're aliens. Aliens. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They all they all wear earrings. These big lo- these big hard to miss earrings. Okay, great. That makes them an alien. And nose ridges. They got nose ridges. Yeah. So, did you notice they never actually call it Turok Nor in the in the flashbacks or when Duluth is talking about it? He always they always refer to it as Deep Space Nine, which yeah. I thought that was a little odd. Right. Well, it's like. A planet nowhere near Earth being called Earth. Maybe the uh, <laughs> universal translators were kicking in. <laughs> well, and I thought it was funny that when Kira is asking for the translation of that of that data pad, she says, "Can I have it translated into English?" Yeah. Really? And, English? And, and, and by the way, why was it in a language that she doesn't recognize? Well, she might rec- she recognizes she just can't read it. I mean, but, I guess well, it would well, be the same as you but, finding a, a a diary in Russian. Yeah, you can you see it's in Russian, but you can't speak it. 
Okay, so you're saying that the Bajorans have many different languages on their planet, which would make sense. We have many pl- many languages here. Huh? Okay, I can buy that. Yeah, I don't know why she calls it an ancient language when well, she exactly says that. it's like, that that part to me. How, how would a little kid know an ancient language? Oh, you're thinking maybe the girl wrote it in code or something? Well, I'm just trying to I'm trying to make sense of what was said. I mean, yeah. what, what, I mean it, the kid wrote this, right? She wrote it for a class project, so you would think that she would write it in a language the teacher could read. Oh, okay. So it's like maybe it was a a, a Latin class. Uh, so that, that that that's what it is, you know, a, an old maybe. dead Bajoran language. Huh. Well, I <laughs> I don't. Know. I literally read it as it was just another language, another dialect of right. Bajor, and right. I I ignored the ancient comment. Right. <laughs> well, and, and why was it okay? Then why did they go to that? trouble to even mention all that in the first place because they wanted a delay in being able to know what was in the diary I mean because so. it seems yeah. like well why did you even bother introducing that amount of detail yeah I guess I mean, they had to delay until she can get into her quarters and take her shirts off and stuff like that <laughs> and look, look like she's re- you know cuddling up to a nice book yeah but it's like really I mean couldn't you have just said uh, Cisco just said, uh, "This looks kind of long. I don't have time to read it." Kira, you you do this. <laughs> yes, that would. I'm delegating. Well. That would have delegating. Well. Exactly. So I, I don't know. Uh, whatever. I yep. just thought I'd mention it. No, that's a good point. So, what'd you think about page two and three? How you had to readjust your <clears throat> your book? Oh, I didn't like that at all. Yeah, I especially, mean, especially you're reading since... it off the DVD. Exactly. So basically, I had to turn my. Well, I, I guess I could have rotated the view. I guess I could have gone to the trouble of that, but I didn't. I just turned my head. Yeah, I had to rotate the comic, and I'm sure if anybody walked by, they're like, what's he reading? Is there a centerfold in that thing? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <Yeah>. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, so I wasn't crazy about that. But I guess, you know, I guess that, I mean, the layout works. It's just, I'm not used to having to turn my books to read things. And, yeah, that, uh, that was the thing they did in the 90s quite often. Oh, did they? Yeah. yeah. It's like a splash page is not enough. We have to have it a splash page, and you have to turn the whole book. Right. <laughs> yeah, and that's pretty brutal. I mean, the the mother is hanging up there dangling. Yeah. You know, in, in like a metal kind of brace thing attached to the ceiling. And you don't see her from the front, but you can see that her clothes are tattered. And she – oh, actually, you do see in a different – in a different panel on the same page, you do see a close-up of her face, and there's blood and stuff. But it looks like they were really beating her real good. Yeah, it's kind of horrible. Yeah. And why does the one the one guy with his the one Card- Car- Cardi with his back to us have to have a rifle for? It's like, she's... <laughs> she, the husband's dead, and she's bound to the ceiling. So it's like, do you need to hold on to that rifle? But whatever. It's intimidating. Uh, I guess. Although he's behind her and she can't see him, but yeah, it's all for show. Now, if he had some kind of pain stick or something, I can see that. Pain! You know, I can see that making sense. Right. Whatever. Cardis are just bad. They're just bad. They're just nasty people. I don't think there's anything you could possibly say to show your side of the story. I'm sorry. Anyway. <laughs> hmm. That's kind and of I'm prejudiced. Glad... I... Well, I'm sorry. I think I'll. I, I think I'll make up my mind. <laughs> um, so did, did you, I don't think you actually did you actually mention the little baseball thing going on with Jake? No, at the I beginning? skipped it. 
Uh, yeah. I actually, like, you know what? I, that's weird. I did skip that all the way, didn't I? Yeah, and quite frankly, that's fine because it was useless. Oh, yeah. Boy, I just jumped straight in. I just skipped that page altogether when I was doing the synopsis. Right. O- oops. Yeah, because it, it, it's useless. I mean, it's like it, it adds nothing to the story. Now, this will come up again in the in the next issue, but equally, it means nothing, and I completely skipped it in my synopsis. But yeah, so it, they introduce the power failure by Cisco and Jake playing baseball, and the power and holodeck right. power going out in the holodeck. Right. That's it. Okay, yeah, that's all. <laughs> Anyway, just a ch- just a chance for uh, Cisco to have some time with with the lad, some some quality time. Exactly. All right, what else you got for this issue? Sir? I got nothing. I got no other comments. All right. Well, shall we jump on to the next? Please. So this is issue number nine. It's called Requiem Two. Its published date is June nineteen ninety four. There are some differences in the credits, so I'll just go over them again. The writer is Mark A. Altman, penciler Gordon Purcell, inkers Scott Reed and Larry Welch, letterer is Patrick Owsley, color design Scott Sava, and the editor is Mark Panacea. The cover shows a female Bajoran looking downward through glass on two armed and angry-looking Cardassians. They may be looking for her, so she is keeping very quiet. Cisco's station log recaps the tenuous power situation on the station. The primary fusion reactor is down due to it exploding. The sole secondary generator is functional, but may go down at any time. One of the old mothballed reactors must be brought online as soon as possible to save the station. The former Cardassian chief engineer for the station is working with O'Brien to get one of the retired reactors back online. Cisco is called to a hollow deck by Major Norris. When she arrives there, he sees the Major with a Bajoran girl he has never seen before. Dax breaks in and reports that the outer hull breach from the reactor explosion is sealed back up again. The little girl next to Kira is a holodeck recreation from the image Dulath obtained of the girl. Kira says she believes Maylor Tai is still alive. Cisco questions her belief, given the scans of the quarantined area show it to be lifeless. Kira tells Cisco that Ty's journal has five pages deleted from it, and the last surviving entry talks about her going to find her parents. Cisco asks what she proposes, and Kira responds to have Odo set up search teams. Cisco says if she's alive, she could be anywhere. To which Cisco says, if she's alive, she could be anywhere. To which the Major says, if she is still alive, the, she probably still thinks the Cardassians are running the station and continues to be in hiding. They need to find her and bring her out of that wasted life. Cisco says, executing a search like that through all the crawl spaces and ducts of the station could take forever but relents and tells Kira to tell Odo to set up two-man search teams, but only using personnel not already assigned to engineering details. Kira thanks him. Meanwhile, O'Brien and Dulath are frustrated at the reactor repair work. Every time they get one subsystem running, another shuts down. 
O'Brien blows up at Duloth over the cheap Ferengi reactor parts that the Cardis used and the fact that his people sabotaged the secondary reactors that were working on their way out of the station when they turned it over to the Federation. They finally get past the argument and decide to split up and work on separate parts of the reactor to hopefully increase their progress. Odo tells Kira the search teams are deployed. Odo asks her where he could prioritize his personal search for the girl. He knows the station far better than the green Starfleet recruits, and he can shift into forms that can make their way through small spaces better. Odo asks why Kira is taking this so personally. She replies by telling a story from her own childhood. Her parents left her alone for 15 hours doing a battle that took place close enough to their home that she heard explosions and the other sounds of battle for most of the night. Kira relates to what Ty went through and may still be going through. Otto shifts into the form of a rabbit and scampers into a ventilation shaft. Meanwhile in the reactor area, Sisko joins O'Brien and Duloth. Duloth is telling Sisko of their latest idea that is unorthodox but should work when Brian calls Sisko over. O'Brien asks Sisko to look into a controller that regulates the fusion reaction. Through the glass he sees a device affixed to the inside wall of the chamber. O'Brien says it's a pulse wave converter that is rigged up as a bomb. If they tried to turn on the reactor, it would cause a large enough explosion to turn DS9 into ashes. O'Brien apparently thinks it is a new addition to the reactor as opposed to something left over from the occupation, because what he is saying is insinuating the only other person with access to the reactor lately other than himself has been Duloth. Later in main missions, the senior staff is discussing the situation. Though Dulath is the only person other than O'Brien they know of that has had access to the previously sealed off reactor chamber and its Cardi tech used to make the bomb, O'Brien does not think it was Dulath that did it. Suddenly, Sisko tells O'Brien to look at the control board. O'Brien takes one look and reports the backup reactor is going down now. Calls come in from from the promenade in sickbay reporting a lost gravity and life support. Emergency lighting and other backup systems kick in. Sisko orders an emergency evacuation call to all Starfleet ships in the area. Sisko orders Odo to coordinate the evacuation. O'Brien reports backup systems will only last three to four hours. Even at high warp, the closest ship is the Gorbachev, and that's at least five hours away. They can only start to ferry civilians to Bajor via the runabouts, and that won't get many people off the station. They have to get the reactor going again. O'Brien says he needs Duloth to get that job done. Sisko reluctantly agrees. Later in the reactor room, O'Brien and Duloth fire up the reactor without a full diagnostic. As they watch the reactor slowly come to life, Duloth tells O'Brien that the soldiers and politicians are all wrong about power. Building a big empty shell in space and bringing it to life, that is true power. The reactor successfully fires up and restores full power to the station. Gravity comes back on in the promenade, resulting in injuries as people fall from midair. Kira receives a call from Dr. Bashir to come to sickbay immediately. 
the dead, lifeless body of Ty is there. O'Brien found her in an access tube. Bashir says, pending a full autopsy, he is pretty sure she died of radiation poisoning, perhaps several months ago. Kara says there will be no autopsy, and she will be buried next to her parents on Bajor. O'Brien pulls out a data disk that was in the area that she was staying in. Later in Sisko's office, Kira enters and states that it was Ty that planted the bomb in the reactor. Sisko questions how a 10-year-old girl could have rigged a bomb, but Kira says she was the daughter of parents that were in the resistance. She was likely trained to have all the knowledge she needed to construct the bomb. Kira says the data disk O'Brien found confirms she did plant it a long time ago when the Cardassians still controlled the station. Her plan was that the station would be blown to bits when they reactivated the reactor. But when the Cardassians never did and left the station, it was left in place, the bomb that is. Later, O'Brien sees Dulath off. Later still, Kira cries in her quarters, wearing her Ripley-approved white underwear over the loss of Ty. The end. Ripley-approved? Ripley-approved whitey undies. Tidy whitey undies. I don't remember that. I'm going to have to go back and look. <laughs> yeah, she, she's kind of... Uh, she's she's sitting on the ground, and her <laughs> legs are, 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 are bent up, so you can't see a lot of her, but you can see she's got her white underwear on, which I love. That's great. That's great. <laughs> I don't see the underwear, but I see her, her shirt, but I, um, maybe I'm not looking at the right picture. Well... It's, Page 24. I think it's one of the few ones there. Yeah, it's three panels, and it it kind of zooms in on her sitting there. I, I'm going to trust you that it's there. <laughs> I just don't see it. Yeah, yep, yep. Tidy whitey undies. There you go. It, and once you mention the alien reference, uh, which is who Ray Ripley's from, it, it does of have course. an alien vibe with, with her like being in the corner, and then it kind of zooming in on her. Yeah. And the little hologram of the girl in that first panel even looks like the spacesuit, kind of, in that same scene from Alien, where Ripley's in that same position. Oh. You weren't cool. going that detailed, were you? No, I wasn't. <laughs> but you went there. Fine. Yeah, I also skipped over some of the, uh, you know, goodbye things sure. uh, with Dulath and stuff. It's just like, let's get this over with. That doesn't really matter that much. It's a synopsis. It's not supposed to be... Right, but you do see panel. you do see a little bit of the interaction with the Kardashians from the Kardashians, not Kardashians, from the ship, and and how the disgraced engineer is interacting with them. Yeah, they don't like him too much. No, but he is very, I guess, to get along in his new situation. He is very much trying to make it sound like, yeah, yeah, helping these uh these useless. Federation types out because they can't handle our technology. So, I just think it's kind of... I thought that part was a little interesting how uh, the interplay with them and how the engineer who did help in the end um, you know, how, how he's dealing with his, his current position in the Cardassian world. And of course it also mentions that he's in some very <laughs> very very less than optimal uh, posting currently. Well, yeah, because because he was the reason why they left Deep Space Nine to begin with. Because it was it was it was it was him who kept forcing them to you know shut down the reactors because it's killing all the people and things like that. So you would think that they would not like him too much. Uh, I didn't get that 
it was him that got them out of Deep Space Nine. Okay. Well, maybe, maybe not just him, but that's that's the reason Cisco gives for trusting him. Uh, right. Yeah. Yep. Well, I and I thought he was saying he was trusting him because at least he tried to do something to because of the fact that people were dying, not necessarily because it was due to him that the Cardassians left Deep Space Nine, but yeah, right. Cool. Any way you look at it, Cisco did see enough in the guy's record that he he did he did trust him at first. Cool. Um, I don't have a to- whole lot of things to talk about in this issue. Yeah, I don't have that much to say either, except that I did get the feeling, although I kind of went light on it in the synopsis, in the part where Odo is asking Kira for her opinion where if you were a 10-year-old girl, where would you hide to optimize his personal search? There's more going on there where she's saying, well, why are you so interested in where to start? And then he says, oh, I'm going to go and look for it. And then he says, I'm looking for it because this means so much to you. And you're like the only family I've got. So that was kind of nice. And then Kira also had said, you know, she kind of made some moves and touched his arm or whatever, like, say, oh, thanks a lot. So, you know, uh, eventually they end up having a romance towards the end of the series. Uh, yeah, but you don't remember the beginning of the series where he's so lovesick for her and she just doesn't see him that way? Oh, I don't remember that. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's that's a that was a very ongoing long-distance romance type. Oh, okay. Unrequited I... love, because she kept having all these boyfriends, and he'd be like, "Oh, <laughs> I love her so <laughs> well much." Was me. <laughs> but they had that great that great episode where they land they they land on a planet, and then they meet their future selves that have been crash landed on that planet for the last twenty years or something. Oh, uh-huh, yeah. And the the only person that's still alive from the original shuttlecraft accident is Odo, and you know he shows he shows. Nerese, her, her, other self's future grave, and uh, he talks about how they were married and how much he he loves her and stuff like that. And then she's like, you know, it's weird that you love me in the future. And he's like, I love you right now. You you just don't yeah. see it. And and I just love that that episode. Uh, ah. I think it's a season three or four episode. Right. It's just so good. You need to, you need to watch some Deep Space Nine, man. I, uh, well, there's definitely episodes I did not see, like that one. I don't know what you're talking about. And then most all of them I saw just once. So it's 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 not like a repeated watching that I did with with uh, a lot of next gen and definitely Taz. I can't I can't relate to you how many times I've seen some Taz episodes. Well, and it also has to do with how old you are when the series came out. Yeah. Because I'm with I'm with you. I've seen next gen episodes a lot because those were coming out when I was a kid. Right. The the series is that you came out when I was yeah when I was an adult. <laughs> those series is I have not seen quite as much. Even though I might like them better, but right. I just exactly. don't have that much free time. Exactly. Yeah, that's a good point. Cool. Okay. So when Kira is retelling her story of when she was a kid, mm-hmm. and how she was there the whole night without her parents and she felt so alone and everything. I certainly hope that that dog she was holding was a stuffed toy. Because <laughs> otherwise, the dog is in exactly the same pose in multiple panels. So, I really hope that was a stuffed dog. <laughs> yeah, that's a stuffed dog. Okay, good. <laughs> uh, and, and, of course, that would underscore the idea that she felt so alone. Because if it right. was a live critter, then you know maybe she would feel a little less alone, but... 
whatever. Uh, another thing is when they when they did show Ty's body, and by the way, they don't call it sick bay. What do they call it uh, on the station? You know, in the hospital area. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Um, they got a different name for it. But they I do have a different name for it. Like they don't call it the bridge; they call it ops. Ops. That's it. Well, okay. That's well. No, that's that's for the bridge. I, I, I know that. Right. Exactly. But I, I forgot that too. Is it medical it, ward? I don't know. It, medical ward. Eh, it doesn't sound right. Anyway, whatever. whatever. Uh, but I, you know, I didn't remember ops, and I should have remembered ops. I called it main mission in yeah, my I heard synopsis. You say that. I heard you say that. Which you know what that's from? Because I know it was totally wrong thing to call it, but I couldn't uh, think of anything else. I wasn't going to call it the bridge. Babylon Five. No. I don't know. What? Well, you probably wouldn't know. You're too young. Space 1999. Oh, did yeah. that come out in 1999? No, <laughs> it came out a lot before 99. I know. Because it was supposed to be... Okay, anyway, so they used to call, <laughs> like, like, like the bridge, uh, ops, whatever label you want to call it. They used to call it main missions. So it's like, okay. Uh, okay. So that's what yeah, came well, to I mind. wondered where you came up with that name, but I wasn't yeah. going to stop your synopsis to ask. Thanks. I appreciate it. I thought, just thought I'd mention that. <laughs> okay, so anyway, so when they're in sick bay, whatever we're calling it, and, and you see the body of the girl, it's like, for somebody that's been dead a couple months, she doesn't look that decayed. I mean, she doesn't look like any spring chicken, but... It's like, I mean, especially if you were being ravaged by uh, by radiation, wouldn't you right. be, look a little more decayed? But yeah. uh, maybe it was preserving her. She's uh, like, maybe she's like maybe. A preserved, like a like a petrified baby. Oh, oh, <laughs> that's a horrible thing to that's say. That's petrified baby. <laughs> uh, anyway. All right, one more thing to say. Okay, I think Cisco was negligent as the commander of Deep, uh, of Deep Space Nine because he knew the situation could have happened. I mean, he knew he only he was on one reactor. And if enough time went, and if that went down, he would have, you know, life support eventually would go down. And there's tons of people on the station. At the very least, they should have called uh, the Gorbachev or some ship and had them there at the station. Right. I mean, really. Or, just to be on the safe side, you know, start to get non-essential personnel to uh, to Bajor. Yeah, so the Gorbachev was in in this issue, or was that last issue? Where oh, it actually issue. showed it? it? Yeah, it, it showed it. It looked like, did it look like kind of like an old Reliant class ship? Yeah, it was an old Reliant class Right. Where, where was it? And it was captained by Captain McCoy? Yes, Captain McCoy. <laughs> right, I, I don't, I'm not quite sure why they use the word uh, the name McCoy, but they did. But, yeah, uh, was that supposed to be an ancestor of old Leonard? Admiral McCoy? Maybe, who knows? Or just the same name? Coincidence? Yeah, I thought uh, that was weird. Yeah, I thought that was a little little odd choice, but uh, whatever. Um, but you know, if you really were doing your job, I, in my opinion, and I know they have to make it like, oh, there's no choice. You gotta trust uh, Dulath or whatever his name is. Um, but really, if you were doing a good job, wouldn't you at least ask for a starship to be nearby? Right. You know? Yeah. And I think he should have been planning on starting to evacuate people to... Right. I agree. Sure. And another thing I'm wondering about, if I, since I'm on a roll now, um, <laughs> it seems like in ops and in the reactor chamber where they're working, there's gravity. But there's no gravity in the promenade. Where now, the majority of the people are? Oh, exactly. So <laughs> is it 
And everybody seems to be able to be, breathe. So obviously, life support is back on. You know, or right. else people wouldn't be breathing. Uh, and have to get in life suits or something. So why... And, and maybe it's like they could only have... Gra- so is it that gravity could only be running in essential areas of the station? Is that why? Because I could see ops being a, an essential place. And definitely when you're trying to get the reactor going, an essential place. So they, so the gravity went off in the non-essential place, which is the civilian promenade area, to save power, what battery power they had. Is that why? Is that the explanation? I don't know. Oh, no. I don't know. That's all I'd say. So, how old do you think she was in that picture with her and the stuffed animal? Oh, Kira. Yeah. It seems like she was probably not too far different from ten. Yeah, because if I'm not mistaken, her mom dies when she's ten. Oh. Well, she is part of the resistance. I mean, they they do say in here they were the mother and father were part of the resistance. Also, I don't know. Maybe the timing is around. Maybe not too long after this incident. Maybe, but and, and and by the way, she's on the planet. I mean, she's on Bajor where this is going on. Right, right. Yeah, that's where that's where Kira lived. Oh, okay. I thought you. S- okay. Well, her mom is kidnapped at one point and and taken up to. Oh, uh, right. Because she had a relationship, maybe with a Cardassian. Yeah, is with Goldicott. Right, right. Goldicott. There you go. Okay. Right. Right. Yeah, so okay. if I'm not mistaken, well, Kira Kira would have already thought her mom was dead because she lived on Deep Space Nine for a while. It doesn't matter. It's it's all this book. Came, just, this this it, came it, out it, way before that episode came out. Where right? So Kira's a little mom. Okay. A little continuity right. problem. All right. We're not supposed to not supposed to think about that kind of stuff. No, no, no. Just enjoy. <laughs> All right, so uh, I guess we should talk about elsewhere unless we have any other comments. I have no other comments. All right, so uh, in the uh, in the consideration of time, we're we're not going to cover all thirteen Deep Space Nine episodes that were released during this time. Yeah. So we're going to just briefly go through them. So these were the ones that came out between February of nineteen ninety four and June nineteen ninety four. So it's uh, the end of season two. I think it's the end. It is the end. Because season three, yeah, season three picks up um, in the fall. Right, right. Yeah, because the last episode of of uh, the season is, is Jim Hadar, which came out this, during this time frame. Right, which I love that. So, uh, and, and I, I hate to start at the end, but uh, <laughs> I do like the Jim Hadar. They're, they're really good bad guys. Uh, and this episode is where Cisco, Jake, Nog, and Quark, very odd grouping, uh, go camping. In the Gamma Quadrant, and uh, they're captured by mysterious soldiers called the Gem Hadar, and meet a force to rival the Federation. So that's cool. Yeah, so it's the uh, the the kickoff for what we will all know as the Dominion War. Right. That's yes. pretty major. That's a major one. Uh, definitely, definitely. Yeah. And I think this episode also had a Galaxy Class ship getting blown up, right? Oh. Oh, is this the one where we had a uh, a Picard lookalike? Yeah, some on a some, galaxy class some ship, old dude. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I recognize him from other TV shows, you know, from other parts. 
that he's right. had on other TV shows and I, maybe movies. I don't know. But uh, he had the he had the, the the shaved head to have the exact kind of like Picard donut and stuff, gray donut. Uh, I thought he had. I thought he just had white hair, but you might be right. I just remember the the way they made it look not like the Enterprise was that instead of having individual seats for all the all the officers, it was like a bench. Oh, hmm. but uh, so they'd make it look a little different. They they def in my opinion, they definitely wanted you to think Enterprise, like in the commercials and stuff. <laughs> well, yeah, and also just in the story, just trying to say, okay, if Picard was in this situation. Galaxy class ship coming toe to toe with the you know with this gem this this, this force and uh, they get their butts handed to them butts right. beat yep yep which then at the end of that after the episode which we don't see because it's off screen Cisco goes back to Earth and gets the Defiant to start off season three with a new class ship cool. Love the Defiant. Sole purpose to fight the defi- the the Dominion. Well, but originally designed to fight the Borg. Right. But he got it to fight the Dominion, right? Yep. Which is very cool, and I really do think they needed something like that, um, because definitely having a ship like the Defiant, rather than just runabouts, really gave it more of a uh, you know a star a traditional Star Trek feel. When they could go off on a powerful ship and uh, do missions, right? And, and having a little model of the Defiant versus, uh, on your desk or whatever meant more than just having random shuttle, random shuttlecraft ABC. You know, uh-huh. just like <laughs> I'm just saying, you had something that was marketable because here's a ship. Oh, I got. You. They only I have one of them. You're going to want to go buy that toy. Right. Oh, I got Whereas you. the, I got the you. shuttlecraft or the <clears throat> runabouts, yeah, uh, runabouts, you're like, yeah, they have a whole bunch of them. They don't really have that emotional impact that an Enterprise or Voyager or something like that would have. Exactly. So no, it was it was a good move on their part. Yeah. All right. So uh, other major episodes this this time period, there was one <clears throat> called Blood Oath, which came out in March. Uh, this is the one where Dax come to find out Dax is friends with a lot of the Klingons we met in, during the original series. Love Car that. and Koloth and things like that. Right. And they go off to find the uh, albino. Good episode. Great yeah. episode. Yeah, that was great. It's like uh, yeah, d- digging up the old uh, warriors for one last big hurrah. Didn't really make sense why all those Klingons were still alive, but yeah, just gonna <laughs> go with it. <laughs> and weren't like, uh, like, like uh, McCoy you know, basically, uh, you know, couldn't fight his way out of a paper bag if he had to. <laughs> right. Because yeah, he was so old. Right. Yeah. But it was good. It was a good episode. I liked it. Yeah. It was great. It it, it was. Was that supposed to be like a like like a movie or something? Uh, like the last roundup or some sort of western. I know. It, it, it just seems. Yeah. It just seems like a together. Right. Bunch of old guys get and and, and not space cowboys. But, you know, kind of like some old traditional movie, you know? Right. Anyway, it just seemed like that. Like some like some old, um, you know, Japanese samurai movie, you know, where the old samurais get together for one last hurrah or something. Yeah. Anyway, Maybe. I don't know what movie that would be, but, yeah. All right. And then the, the last episode, I think, is <clears throat> of major significance this, this time period is Crossover, which cool. was the first time they did the... Mirror Universe and Deep Space Nine. Right. With uh, 
evil Kira being in charge of the uh, Deep Space Nine. It's a good episode. Yeah. Well, it's really amazing how many times you can trot out the Mirror Universe idea. Well, you know, this was a, technically this was only the second time they did it on screen. Right, but we got Enterprise. I mean, they had okay, so well, they had I'm, I'm saying yeah, so the second time. Well, okay, and that's fine. And I'm saying that they did it multiple times in Deep Space Nine. Mm-hmm. They did it in Enterprise. Did they? They never did. Okay, they did. Uh, Next Gen never did uh, a Mirror Universe episode, did they? Nope, never. I don't remember one. Nope. Um, so. And Voyager kind of did in that some of the Voyager people are in the Deep Space Nine ones. So, like, Tuvok is in the Mirror Universe on Deep Space Nine. Oh, I didn't even remember that. Hm. Yeah, so that was kind of cool. Oh, that was that's a nice qu- crossover. Huh. So in the Mirror Universe, he is not stuck out in the Delta Quadrant. Because that didn't happen. Exactly. Ah, where they got stuck out there. Hm. Right. Cool. So, anyways, crossover's good. Uh, there's, there's a, there's these other ones are good. We're just not going to talk about yeah. them. We're it would take forever. Way, way, way over time. Yeah, and I think that three, three issue or three episodes. That's good. Yeah. So, all right. So uh, I guess uh, next week we'll be back with Taz fifty five, fifty six, and fifty seven. Cool. So what, what's going to happen when the Kirk goes back in time to meddle with Klingon history? Right. Exactly. Right. How is he going to get that guy killed? It's the so quantum leap episode. He's going qu- back in time to set right what what once went wrong. Oh, good point. And there hoping that each time that his next leap will, be- <laughs> will bring him home. Will be the one that bring him home. <laughs> good show. Yeah, but, but it'll good be series. a home where David's dead. So I'm kind of curious to see how that all plays out because you're talking about a Kirk that has a son. He had, right. a, you know. David grew. He and David have grown up together with all these years, and then now he finds out that this universe is not supposed to be, and he has to go back in time to basically yeah. kill his his own kid, right? Indirectly, yeah. Trotting out the bittersweet, probably the definitely the best part of City on the Edge of Forever episode, right? Where he had to do the same thing for Edith Keeler. Yep. All right. So we'll. That's enough of a tease for next episode. Yes, that's and great. reminder of what happened. All right. Take care, everybody. Sorry to ramble. Yeah. Thanks for joining us. See you next time on The Review. Later. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music, stories, and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at T comicbookreview at gmail.com Visit us at our website www.stcomicbookreview.com Subscribe to us via iTunes or friend us on Facebook at first name ST Comic second name book review See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review Let's get the hell out of here